0: Hello, and welcome to the Library Cafe on WVKR, a weekly program of table talk with scholars, artists, and librarians about research and the formation and circulation of knowledge. I'm Thomas Hill. Our guest today is the art historian extraordinaire Suzanne Preston-Blier. Suzanne is the Alan Whitehill-Chloes Professor of Fine Arts and of African and African American Studies at Harvard University. She's also a member of the Institute for Quantitative Social Science and is faculty associate at the Harvard Mellon Urban Initiative. She's with us today to talk about her book, Picasso's Demoiselles, The Untold Origins of a Modern Masterpiece, published in 2019 by Duke University Press. Welcome, Suzanne.
1: Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here and lovely to see you.
0: Same here. 2019, is it really that long ago? It seems like you just put the book out, but uh, I guess 2020 was a quick year, it seems like. Anyway, first question, of course, is what motivated you as a specialist in the arts of Africa to write a book on what Anna Chave calls the equivalent of the art world's greatest story ever told, the circumstances around Pablo Picasso's painting of his Damoiselles d'Avignon?
1: I had no intention of writing it, but circumstances prevailed. It began with a chance discovery of a book in one of the Harvard libraries. Mm-hmm. And then, wow, this is really interesting, but I wasn't going to go much further with it, and then discovered two and then three more books, and and at a certain point, uh, with Sleep deprivation, having flown over to Paris Uh and uh, giving myself permission to do whatever seemed like a good next project. Uh, I just started in writing. And in a way, Les Demoiselles drove me to write about them, Uh uh, as did the libraries and other contexts in which these materials showed up.
0: That's so interesting. It's it's almost as though the archive calls you and says, we need you to do this project. (laughs) So very mysterious. How did your background as an Africanist lead you essentially to the evidence of your discoveries about this modern painting? Another obvious question, you probably have answered it a hundred times, but it's an interesting...
1: Well, I was actually, I was going to the library for, this is the Tazer Library, which is the Anthropological Library at Harvard. And I went in to check on another source, having nothing to do with this. It was a book by a German anthropologist named Leo Frobenius and Mm -hmm. I went to the stacks and I pulled that book out this was for my previous book on the Nigerian archaeological site it's still a living Mm -hmm. site today called Ile Ife where Frobenius had gone and right beside it was this thin green volume and I pulled it out and you know Mm -hmm. curiosity libraries are one of the funnest places for an academic and opened it up. And I had read it before in graduate school, but it was before the sources, or I should say the sketches for Picasso's Demoiselle had been published. But this time when I opened it up, I looked down at the imagery and said, wow, these are really very similar to sketches that were published after Picasso's death. And actually I took it home and looked at that across the catalogs for the mom exhibit and said well this is really interesting but you know I didn't do much more with it until I found a couple of other books so as an Africanist I wouldn't have been at that library looking at that particular area of it I still can remember you know it was the second stack from the bottom uh, yeah. <laughs> I just remember so much about that day that's interesting. And so, you know, it was this path as an Africanist that led me to this particular source.
0: Really interesting story about serendipity and the turns of fortune of doing research. You couldn't have done this if you were just looking at the Frobenius virtually online, could you? I mean, uh, it wouldn't have happened. No, no. Well,
1: one, I could not have, uh, I would not have seen it if these were in the closed stacks and Uh I would have called the book out. I I would have missed it. They've done a new edition uh, or more recent edition of the Frobenius, but the images are not the same. And one of the things about the physical book in this case is that they had calcs or tracing paper protections over the color plates, and they themselves had linear drawings on them. And I would have missed that uh, as well as the specific colors, which which ultimately Uh. were important because... One of the questions about this painting is where did Picasso get the palette Mm -hmm. for it? It's Uh it's an unusual one for Paris at this time, much more evocative of what was happening in Germany, Uh which makes sense because Frobenius was a German author and the illustrator was either German or Swiss German as well.
0: Uh Absolutely fascinating. So, you know, I got a sense in this book, I often say this about scholarship The best scholarship, one gets a sense not only of the argument that's being put forward, but also of the uh, scholar's growth as the process of research is developing. You get that sort of sense of excitement that something is happening here to the author, you know, and the reader always picks up on that. And I get that in space on this project with this book. Can you sort of expand on the excitement of your discoveries that comes through in the book here? and why they are so exciting. I mean, what, the, what was there exciting about this project for you and this research?
1: Well, I think there were moments of it that were tremendously exciting. I think by the time I committed myself to this in Paris at that time, I said, okay, fine, this is the one I'll do next. That was really wonderful. And then I just decided to follow a path of following Picasso's path. So imagining that I was doing research in Africa as I would, I would Mm -hmm. just go from place to place and pick up uh, what I was seeing on the ground, talking to people, photographing the different sites, et cetera. I will say initially it was, I'm trying to think of language I I would use perplexing, complicated, difficult in a way because there's so many projects that one gets immersed in that I'm passionate about. Uh, in my own major field of African art. So it's turning down other projects to do this one. And so I felt and do feel a certain amount of guilt about taking on this new project outside of my own really important field and my own, I think, really important work in that field on an array of topics that are not yet completed in part because of this volume. But as it was really clear what was happening and as I began to shape how I would address this methodologically, that's always complicated. And I'm not a modernist in the sense of somebody whose principal research and writing focus has been on modern or contemporary art. And that's a field with some really excellent scholars and, and really provocative uh, scholarship. But I wasn't uh, really interested in coming at it through a theoretical lens that was largely shaped from that vantage point. I wanted to listen to the painting itself and the materials, the books, the questions that they were raising to come up with my own perspective. And once I realized that I would probably be best served as with the painting by writing this as kind of a journey of discovery, Mm -hmm. as a kind of walking through the materials and what was being laid out before me, then I felt really comfortable with it. And I will say that the writing of the book went unbelievably quickly for me i mean the hardest part was cutting it down as as you know if you're going to get it published it's got mm-hmm. to come in in a reasonable size and wow. um but that piece went really easily it was it, it was it took a bit of time to shape what was going into what chapter uh-huh. it's always complicated as you're thinking visually and around the text at the same time but the longest period of time took in figuring out how i was going to publish it with the images and missions and the decision to go for use and then making sure all of that was airtight before Duke University Press wanted to proceed with it and I would proceed with it. So there was a lot of excitement, but there was a fair amount of kind of harrowing and complicated things that were happening along the way in in making these various decisions. That to me, you know, as an author, there is much a part of my memory as anything else.
0: Uh Uh-huh. And then we kind of are assuming it, but, it, you know, it, it's not explicit. The aha moment here is the fact that these texts that you have turned up are texts that Picasso actually used to help him sketch out what he was going to do with uh, demo cells when he painted it. Yeah,
1: yeah, I think that's the aha moment. But I also think for me, the I mean, that, that still remains a kind of lacuna in a uh-huh. way. We don't have a record that he had these particular books in his in his mm-hmm. collection when he died. Now there are many reasons for that. I think that one certainly would be that at that juncture, artists would never admit that they were mm-hmm. using books, right? And so that might have had a perception to be a negative impact on. Picasso and his brilliance as an artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, nor do they appear in the library of Apollinaire, from whom he most likely got these sources. Mm-hmm. Um, he also could have taken them out, or had somebody take them out from from a library in Paris. There were artists who were doing this as well. So that remains an issue in some respects. Although it makes sense that we would not necessarily have found them, and the same holds true for many. Artworks, we know that an artist has seen certain things based on the sketches and the foundational compositions, etc and I had looked at these sketchbooks so closely that I am you know one hundred percent confident that he did indeed see these and knew them quite well and at the same time because we have evidence of a couple being used simultaneously i mean there 's just no other source for that, but to my mind, what was even more important, was the new perspectives on the painting that the sources offered. It got us out of the trench of thinking about this as a painting about his fear of sex, or his mm-hmm. fear of death, or personalizing it within a kind of pseudo-autobiographical framing of Picasso Mm -hmm. by allowing us to see that Picasso really was interested in big ideas. He loved having around him at this time great intellects and Mm -hmm. I think his moments in his own art is when he's engaging with these great minds, whether Apollinaire or Gertrude Stein, or any number of the others that were important during this period.
0: Fascinating. The interesting thing for me as a librarian is that cast the creative process for Picasso as a research process for him to dive into these ideas and then do something with them and then change the culture. He has to be a researcher and even a researcher of books.
1: Absolutely. And I think that what often gets lost, and I'm glad you used the word cast as well, Uh, Because he was using casts, Uh plastic uh casts, uh, to to just reframe (laughs) that as another key source. So for him, it wasn't, let's go to the Louvre and look at the brilliant works of art. It was a journey of discovery and research at various museums and at various sites in Paris itself that are along his various pathways. But I think for a painting of this size, it's an enormous one, and complexity, and true novelty i mean novelty Mm. to the point where it is still so fresh today that degree of research profound research into ideas and style and ways of rendering is what really make this painting and picasso at the moment so important and so at once challenging but also incredibly transformative
0: we didn't talk about the fact that th- this really is a, a monument in modern art, isn't it, *The uh, Demoiselles? I mean, it, there's almost nothing like it with this much influence and this much excitement about it. And one feels that when you stand in front of a painting at MoMA there. Everything else kind of falls into the background and you really, it's a disturbing painting still, isn't it? Yeah. It still has force even today.
1: Yeah, and, and what's, what's interesting also to me is that it is, even when you stand in front of it, So easy to misread it. In other Mm -hmm. words, we're so used to seeing it and we're so used to seeing it through a particular lens that we misread it. If you were to ask most people what's in the painting, they would say five naked women, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, staring at you. When you look at it, there's really only two or three who are staring at you, the rest Mm -hmm. are not. And, And one in particular, the crouching figure at the lower right. And frankly, there are only two of them who are without some kind of attire. The standing Mm -hmm. woman in profile, the the African on the right, uh, facing toward the center, and then the crouching figure uh, at the lower right. The figure on the far left, the so-called Egyptian or Asian, is in a a gown. And Mm -hmm. the two more classical figures in the center, their hips are draped uh, with a Mm -hmm. cloth. So to say it is uh, naked is incorrect, but it's Mm -hmm. hard to... Correct that when everybody sees that and everybody sees all of the women as menacing Mm -hmm. the viewer when in fact they're not
0: interesting. It's not just tourists who see this. It's also the tradition. I mean, the critical tradition, starting with our own here at Vassar, Dorothy Syberling, She's a Vassar graduate. Her former husband, Leo Steinberg, set a certain reading of this work, didn't he? And it has to do with the sexuality and you know, all the figures in the work, uh, especially. Was that a hard thing to get around or to get through? Uh, you talk about it in the book. You have to deal with them.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I would say Picasso has been very lucky, not just Picasso, but the Renaissance era, as well Leonardo among others to have such a brilliant mind and such a master craftsman of words as Leo Mm -hmm. Steinberg I mean he's truly extraordinary and in his writing on Les Demoiselles he literally takes the air out of the room I mean Mm -hmm. there's nowhere to go he just he just (laughs) writes so profoundly beautifully and impactful that there's no way to insert any kind of engagement around that particular perspective and In the end, to my mind, the only way to go was to to drop it entirely and, and not even attempt to move in that direction. And then to come to realize that in a way, this was a personal journey for him in the same way that it was a personal journey for me. I mean, he had told one of his students about encountering a woman of the night in Paris and how frightening an experience that had been for him. And whether that had a particular play in his mind as he was looking at these women. I think the other thing that we've had a hard time getting around and still do today, it's, it's much more fun talking about the painting as a a literal brothel, a place of sexual encounter, but in French today and in this period, Le Bordel did not mean a Mm -hmm. place of sexual encounter. It means a mess like uh, your child's messy bedroom or a really complicated messy political or intellectual issue sit in bordel it's like throwing up your hands we can't even address this but the 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 term brothel and bordello and bordel and it's got people people are still uh, I think heavily grasping on that as going back to Barcelona Mm -hmm. and the place for the Acquisition of paints and Picasso really never could argue against it. And at a certain point, whether he threw up his hands or whether he was thinking, well, this really helps to promote the painting in in various ways Mm -hmm. is not clear. But like looking at the painting, the same thing with the name of the painting, even though he himself had never named it, it gets in the way in some ways Mm -hmm. of looking at the painting anew.
0: This, of course, is the age of Dr. Freud. I mean, that when that painting is painted, you know, right there. And certainly sexuality is is a theme in the painting. You, you can't get around that. I'm sure Steinberg is right there, but... Your argument here, in my sense, is that Picasso has a very expansive idea of sex, of what sex is about, that it's it's not pure voyeurism, for sure. There's some issue to sexuality, yes, and and that has to do with these women standing in the painting.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a really key point, and I would say it's an issue of a surfeit, it's an issue of a surplus, it's sex and the aftermath, mm. it's children, pregnancy, mm-hmm. mothers, right, yeah. which goes back actually closer to Freud. Uh, yeah. And Uh thinking about a relationship between a son and his mother, if one had wanted to follow that path. And as I say, I chose instead to keep the line more directly related to his path of discovery. But I think thinking about mothers and mothering and his own relationship with women. and, And here I'm coming back to this vantage point of an Africanist. There's something deeply complicated about sex and pregnancy and motherhood in just physical anatomy you know the the place of great pleasure is also the place of great pain and the place of great hope in the relationship between a couple and thinking about progeny but how do you explain this in terms that are viable to a young child, or even in a, a other way, even with adults, it's, it's a very complicated thing. And, and this is something that because it was obviously not only able to grasp, but able to see into at this moment of really focusing on theories of evolution and ideas of colonialism, and the world is somehow mm. within grasp visually, as you're seeing people around the world, books like Strauss, but also on the streets of Paris through mm-hmm. the 1900 World's Fair and other events. And you're going, well, where did everybody come from? And how mm-hmm. do you get people mm-hmm. who are from Asia and people who are from Africa and people who are from Europe or the Americas? And where did they all come from? And what is the relationship with each other historically and mm-hmm. still today. And I think he did that in part by adding in another level that makes it even more rich and complicated by envisioning each of these women within an art style distinctive of where they're being identified. Uh, And that's uh what makes it so difficult to look at and rich to look at because each is done at a different perspective, in a different style Mm -hmm. and Uh in a different rendering. I mean, I always like to point out, you can't imagine, I can't imagine A woman walking in Egyptian style, one foot, you know, in profile across the frame. Walk like an
0: Egyptian, yeah. (laughs) Yeah,
1: walking like an Egyptian in a a brothel. I mean, Uh I can't imagine anybody who would want to a priori envision a brothel from that particular vantage point. Mm -hmm.
0: So Darwin enters in here, apart from Freud, doesn't he? Because there's a sense of peoples from all over and their differences and their similarities, isn't there? So uh...
1: yeah, and Straus himself is interesting and complicated, and even more interesting from this vantage. If you search for Karl Heinrich Strauss on Wikipedia, he's the first gynecologist, right? Mm-hmm. One of the first recognized and. Part of what he was doing was science. He was a medical doctor in Southeast Asia, Austrian, and ending up, I think, in Denmark. And each of the books that he's written, and he he wrote a large number of them, dealt largely either with race or with dress or with other kinds of issues and were heavily illustrated with more scientific drawings of anatomies than had been done to date, largely by French artists and others who were following a kind of neoclassical mode of rendering, a kind of an idealized body. And Strauss's claim to fame was that he was using the actual physical dimensions of people that he was exploring. And there are good things and bad things with Strauss. On the one hand, he's catering to an audience that is deeply immersed in the racial issues of the day, deeply curious about sexuality. This was in an era where even piano legs were being covered uh, with uh, protective things. that so we, we couldn't yeah, well, imagine and very few medical doctors actually saw their patients nude. So we have that happening. On the other, he was one of the scientists who actually made a point in this era to emphasize that Jews were not different necessarily from Caucasians or others. So putting aside some of the issues of anti-Semitism at play, I think like many figures in this period, there were Multiple perspectives on it, and, and Picasso himself falls into some of the physiognomic pejorative caricatures of the era. In, for example, his rendering of the standing figure on the right, who portrays an African with kind of a long simian-like jaw. So he's not immune to this either.
0: It does strike me to some extent. There is a kind of racism here. This is, you know, attempt to break things up scientifically and classify or develop a hierarchy but i don 't get that in Picasso in a sense, he seems to turn that on its head. Am I right there?
1: I agree, and I will say this, this is a really hot topic uh, mm-hmm. debate now in the field more generally, certainly in art history and museum studies, etc. I think what he did i 'm not going to say that that as i say he's he's buying into some of the caricatures, yeah. but one of the things that he did that was so revolutionary and clearly was one of the very first to do it was to put African art in proximity with, adjacent to, in the same context of engagement as you're in. And that in and of itself was absolutely radical and revolutionary, Uh because to this point, Africa had been denigrated as a site without culture, without religion, without art, without civilization. Mm -hmm. And if art, particularly in France, is one of the hallmarks of what is great civilization, then to insist that this is art and this is worthy of engagement, as a matter of fact, even of greater importance for artistic engagement, than the legacy of European traditions Mm today. And that puts him in a very different place. I think that the complexity emerges about those who would argue that he is himself stealing from Africa, its canonical visual forms, in part to make his own, certainly this canvas, but his own reputation. And I tend not to agree with this. I think that first I could argue as an Africanist that Africans were as bent on appropriating imagery and ideas uh-huh. and even commissioning works from uh-huh. Europe and borrowing from them in Dahomey, one of the places that I've worked a lot as well as elsewhere. And so too, Picasso was appropriating from any number of other places, medieval European forms, which at that point were Uh labeled primitive, Primitive, Um, (laughs) Southeast Asia. I mean, that's the way artists work, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. So we're talking about transculturation more than exploitation. Although there's this high colonial world going on with the world's fairs at this time in Paris and all these cultures being displayed and peoples from all over the world being displayed as objects. But then there, there's a movement of ideas and culture. and Yep,
1: very good. I think 1900 is one of those really, really important mm-hmm. times. Oh. And this is soon after that. And I think that that we somehow, we shouldn't, but we lose sight of how Physically and emotionally important centennial years are. Mm-hmm. Think about yeah. what happened in the year 2000. Yeah. Think about what happened in the year 1000. The, the craziness, right, mm-hmm. of all of these. Or 1500. 1900 is the same way. Somehow, and you've got the invention of electricity and really global travel and so many other photography is in play. It really is a transformational movement, And I think Picasso and photography brings up another point. European art really could not have gone much further, either within the genre of painting or within the context of thinking about photography. It could not Mm -hmm. have gone any further in realism. And so Picasso was really breaking that up From the vantage of looking for other ways in which one can think about the body and the rendering body and think about the canvas in an entirely
0: new light. We haven't talked about that sort of feminism in the work, and you mentioned Dahomey Amazons as one of Picasso's cultural sources, and I wonder if you could talk about the Amazons there, which were fascinating little passage in your book,
1: yeah, that was one of the books that is not done yet, thanks to Picasso uh-huh. um, but I'm speaking uh-huh. about in particular yeah, and it's a fascinating subject, uh, women warriors in what is now the Republic of Benin that was the kingdom of dahomey mm-hmm. and I'm it's sort of. Deeply immersed in that particular subject, and I had seen a photograph of the homie warriors performing in Europe they've been performing in places such as Hamburg they eventually go to Paris and to London and come to Chicago to the Columbian exposition of 1893 but I'd seen a photograph taken in Hamburg that it appeared in an anthropological work in a book by this medical doctor named and And I'd gone to the... Harvard library, different library to pick it up, or it actually looked online and realized it was in the medical school library, which was Ooh. unusual. There's not often that I'll call up a book and it's not there. And so it comes in and you know what it's like you go in to pick up a book that had been called mm-hmm. in and I take it and I open it up and I go, wow image after image, after image of naked women. And I shut it up quickly and put it in my book bag and brought it home. And so that was the second major book that I because as I was leafing through it, I realized that many of his studies were based on the proportional sketches and indeed imagery that Strauss was using for women from various places. And and it it was just so clear cut from that vantage point. But women warriors were and still are a fascinating trope going back to the ancient world. And I think that the rediscovery of women warriors was exhilarating for the French going into the 1892-3 colonial wars in Dahomey. There are legions of books about French military and officers encountering them on the field of battle. Of course, by this time, there is a rapid fire gun that the French are using, so and they move really pretty much throughout the continent. they and the Germans and the English very rapidly colonizing these various places in part for control and in large part in that for for gaining economic power, you know hold of trade routes, etc. But the theme of women warriors and men fighting women warriors is fascinating was a fascinating topic in the 1890s in Paris and elsewhere. And at the same time, 1890s is when the bicycle is invented. Mm -hmm. So you have women on horseback, who in French are called les Mm -hmm. amazones. women riding bicycles. It's the same metaphor. There's a particular style of a suit and a skirt that women will wear that allow them to ride horses and ride bicycles. It's called Lamazon. Mm -hmm. And Picasso's lover at the time has acquired one of these Mm -hmm. suits that she wears to an opening. And he is playing with it visually by creating a face on her buttocks uh, with a (laughs) crease in the back. So he's really interested in the attire dimension of this and the image of it's a moment of thinking about women and power, it's kind of nascent feminism coming into play as one is thinking forward about independence and ultimately the vote. So I think it is, that's also a really important Mm. question. And no doubt also carries its own doubts and concerns and realize that through much of this period, he's closely engaged with Gertrude Stein. Mm-hmm. And the portrait of Gertrude Stein at the Metropolitan Museum of Art is one of the works that I'm pretty confident that Picasso had used the Leo Frobenius book in part Uh in thinking about how he's going to render Gertrude Stein. But here we have a powerful, strong, intellectual woman who is very much, in a sense, the soulmate of Picasso in this period, as Mm -hmm. both of them are exploring on Gertrude Stein's part, new forms of writing and engagement, and on the part of Picasso, new forms of engagement with both drawing and painting and and ultimately sculpture as well.
0: She seems to understand this painting, the hints you get from her reading of it, doesn't she? More so than his other colleagues. I mean, his painterly colleagues.
1: Yeah, I I think she gets it. I think he must have been deeply disappointed when she didn't buy it. Uh. I think it was intended for her. But I think the problem was it was... So big. Yeah, yeah, I mean, she yeah. she had she had a very large <laughs> yeah. home and she had others of his works and Matisse, et cetera, et cetera. But it was just out of the question yeah. uh, for her. But yeah, I think individuals with whom he was close, and I argue this a bit in the book. He does portraits of them that reflect their understanding of the African piece of it. Hmm. And whether it's Uday, the German dealer, or any number of others, I think that he in a way, is celebrating their knowledge of this with the way that he's rendering them in pictorial form.
0: You bring in Picasso's background as an Andalusian, and that possibly having an influence on his interest in Africa, yes? I mean, he is keenly interested in Africa for many reasons, but it may have to do with his own family, yes?
1: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. First of all, Malaga Where he was born is, in many respects, an African city. Uh I mean, it's one of the key ports going to North Africa. So that is very important. Early on in his life, he is portraying people of African descent within that context of that physical space. I think another really important point is his grandfather was in the Spanish colonial service Uh and was in Cuba, a place with a deep African diaspora legacy. And his grandfather had had a partner who was of African descent and Picasso had cousins Uh who were African. And so I think that knowledge of this, and he certainly knew of it, is also a piece of it as he's thinking about, well, Darwin and race and difference and proximity and art style and engagement. Uh And I think Andalusia also is a place in part because of its rich African heritage, that is offering a different set of cultural slash religious Mm. values in one's own life. So I think Picasso was a deeply, I could say, mysterious, I could say, an individual driven by signs and what those signs might mean. He was very nervous if somebody, for example, had a piece of his hair or a piece of his clothing because that carried a certain aura for him. And you have a lot of these ideas that are in place in in areas of Africa as well that may have come across with the large movement of populations and cultures, really from the uh, 10th century on and, and earlier as well. So I think that's a part of it. And I also think he was incredibly nervous about his own creativity. And his sister had died young and he had been willing to give up anything if she had lived. And I think that he was very nervous about whether he could ever have a family, have children and still be a creative artist. I mean, it's one of those things that, you know, there are always balances in life. And I think that was a part of it. And the fact that there is this kind of play around ideas of magic and sources Mm. and impacts In a sort of real world, but kind of subterranean metaphoric context is is part of of who he is and what he was about. He also had an amazing sense of humor. Uh So there's a lot of playfulness in what he does as well, along with the seriousness.
0: Yeah, I get a sense from your book that his understanding of what art is, is influenced by all of this, that it is magic in a sense. I mean, which is how the, the art object in Africa is understood. The mask, everything, they're all part of rituals and they're part of negotiating with the powers that be, whatever they are, for good crops, health, safety, whatever. So I get the sense, certainly from your book, and also just looking at Picasso, that there's something else going on here, though. The work isn't just a representation that we look at and wonder about some other scene that we're not actually in. It's um, It has a function.
1: Right. And I would add a piece of that. I think that he was engaging with this kind of meta-language, uh-huh. also with other artists. So uh-huh. the, I, one of the photographs that I, in a sense, rediscovered, it's been known since 1973, was a photograph most likely taken by Picasso of Les Demoiselles in a studio, uh-huh. With the wife and daughter of Kees van Dongen, who was in the same studio apartments. And in a way, taking the photograph of another artist's wife and daughter is saying, <laughs> I have had her. You now I have her.
0: I have a power uh, over and, her. Yeah. yeah right. So, yeah. And,
1: and Matisse got this. And they would engage with one another visually through the forms that they were creating to suggest this kind of, I don't think this is really playful. I mean, for because it was it was really serious. Uh-huh. I, I think he respected Matisse as a challenger, as a competitive artist, uh-huh. almost more than anybody else in this era. Of course, Cezanne is now no longer around in the same way, but they were continually doing these back and forth and giving each other paintings or allowing each other to take paintings and then seeing what happened with them and so yeah. it was serious you know it's kind of the equivalent in an artistic sense of frenemies ah, uh,
0: and, uh, interesting. that
1: kind of deep respect but yeah. also real nervousness
0: yeah well secrecy is part of this too you, you acquire power by not telling your opponent what it is you're up to and that's very important obviously for all of these artists they don't give away their techniques any more than a magician would and and that's probably in part why Picasso always hid the fact that he was using these literary sources for what he was doing. Yes. I mean, uh, yeah, sense,
1: I, I yeah. do think so. We also, well, we do it of, of evidence in a photograph, but also the same kind of meticulous art historical work by yeah. Ellen McBreen on Matisse. So circulating mm-hmm. around this time were a series of photographic magazines, I would call them mm-hmm. with images of women from around mm-hmm. the world. It was verging even in Paris, at this time of, of pornography, yeah, and uh-huh. how much of a cast of art can you put to yeah. it versus simply if a woman is standing there with her hand draped behind her head? You know, it might go in both directions. But these were circulating intended for artists, and Strauss was certainly intended for artists. And I think that many of them were probably in on this particular set of knowledge. I did find one person who probably knew about, or maybe a couple people who knew about the Leo Frobenius book, but uh, I don't think many others did. And it's kind of surprising just in an art historical sense. And part of what was really great in doing this was Jean-Louis Podra in the MoMA exhibit from the Primitivism Exhibition had noted that in Paris at the time Picasso was working, there were none of the available African masks that Mm -hmm. scholars had said he must have seen. That was behind Will Rubin's premise for doing the whole show. So then he ended up almost in an impossible situation justifying that exhibit and providing a lens through which we could understand it. And then he went into what I found just a deeply troubling vantage point was that in some way, the mindset of the modern and the mindset of the primitive, and both of those terms, I think, can need to be mm-hmm. deconstructed and reevaluated in a very heavy manner, are the same. Oh. And so they came on these equivalencies through that particular lens and I think by the finding of the Frobenius book that was so richly illustrated and you've got the color palette and the tracing paper imagery and others it kind of lays to rest that idea that first of all that you can say that Africans and Native Americans and people from Oceania have the same mindset and that that's the same as early 20th century Europe and China and Mm. wherever, it's hard to contemplate as an art historian, much less as a scholar at all. Um, So I do think that the issue of secrecy is really important, but also is the fact that there were so many things circulating at this time. I think it's really important to piece things together and not so much look at, well, what is this specific imagery, but what are the broader ideas that are being engaged, whether it's colonialism or Evolution, mm-hmm. yeah. or even this idea that was also happening at this time, with a kind of transition of time
0: that oh. you could see times merging. You mentioned H.G. Wells writes The time machine just this stuff. It was perfect, and in a sense, the painting is a kind of a time machine, isn't it? And that we didn't really talk about the content of the painting, but you have peoples from different eras. And different geographic locations, women in the same space, uh interesting space it is it's kind of a crushed space, even though the painting's so large, and then you've got the crouching figure at the bottom, which is just absolutely fascinating figure, even with the other figures in the painting. she's a fascinating figure
1: yeah, and I think that's half of the intrigue. One is what is that space, mm-hmm. and on the one hand, I think Leo Steinberg has really wonderfully addressed it as vaginal in many ways uh-huh. i mean it's just pulsating in a way yeah. but it's also a cave-like interior and at the same time both of those evoke kind of a womb-like space so mm-hmm. take it metaphorically physically or otherwise but in some ways he's brought these women from different time periods and different places different styles back into the same room i mean it, it's mm-hmm. quite astonishing the african woman looks like she's rushing in late you know from the right with their hands in a karyatid pose, and the Egyptian, of course, is walking Egyptian style yes. from the left. I'm wondering, it. I, I played around a bit with this as kind of a mapping mm. of this also, sort of laid out on an actual map and of the globe and thinking about coloring of the earth tones and the mm. water tones in play with it. And then we have this transformative, really strange figure, crouching figure in the lower right, who is turned 180 degrees around to face us. This is a really important moment when these Mm -hmm. women are coming together. You as an audience, what are you doing? Or you as potential enemies, why are you coming into the space? One of her eyes is black and one of her eyes is blue, which is pretty anomalous, you know, but, but appears in certain contexts. And even that position Historically, in Africa and in parts of Andalusia, women gave birth in a kind of crouching position. Mm-hmm. So she herself is taking that stance mm-hmm. as she is turned around, and it gives that full dimensionality to it. As Picasso was thinking about. 3D and 2D space as he's moving toward cubism Mm -hmm. and thinking about those kind of renderings, particularly that figure becomes a really important moment as he is exploring this larger idea.
0: So the painting, in many people's eyes, launches Cubism in part. Anyway, it's just at this period that he develops the idea of Cubist space, isn't it?
1: Yeah, so that's one of the interesting, it's not the right word, but that's one of the really important sets of discussions around Mm -hmm. the canvas that I think we should be willing to challenge Mm. um Uh, that painting certainly is a key part of it if you look at the sketchbooks it's already in play mm -hmm. i hear i'm talking about cubism Cubism, and yet for so long modern art scholars and museums with these exhibits have insisted on separating out les demoiselles kind of proto-cubism from the others and to my mind there is a core reason for this and that is how can the most transformative, the most creative, the most powerful Mm. art historical engagement of the 20th century, that which led us on the road to all that followed, come from Africa, come from an engagement with new kinds of thinking about three-dimensionality and two-dimensionality. And Picasso, going back to October 1906, playing with that Villy figure all Mm. night long as Mm. his fingers are in a very tactile, emotional, physical way, grappling with the differences in form. But from the vantage point of the West and Western art history, how can that movement mm-hmm. have come from Africa? Mm-hmm. And so the separation of cubism, forthright, and even the introduction of Braque as in some way a co-player with Picasso in the invention of cubism is in some ways, I would say, almost a means to sever Africa from oh. its ah. Uh-huh. And for many, and this is going back a fair number of decades, even insisting that Africa was not part of Les Demoiselles, mm-hmm. that it was never a core piece of his sources, various uh, yeah. engagement with the canvas. That's kind of, you know, and I, I use these kind of words sparingly, but it's a kind of whitening of Picasso mm-hmm. and a whitening of that painting. And in the you know, the kind of postscript to this as well. Some of the comments or critiques of the book have been that it does not engage with the post-history of the canvas. That was also, I mean, I have more than enough material to do that. But in thinking about how did this canvas project into the re-engagement around African-American, Faith Ringgold, and Mm -hmm. other kinds of ways of addressing, whether it's violence against women, which to my mind really is not a core piece of this painting because I see it more around the idea of intergenerational motherhood but those are certainly important points but I think at this juncture for many scholars and students whether it is focusing on Picasso as a misogynist as many have done seeing the canvas is about the exploitation of women in a brothel mm-hmm. and seeing Picasso who did have many relationships in his life but at this point in time he tended to, to be not that I'm valuing this, but tended to have his relationship in a serial fashion. Mm -hmm. And he was, as far as we know, loyal to Olivia at this time. There were just a whole series of conversations around the painting and the aftermath of that that are also very interesting.
0: Well, you talk a lot about the masks and their influence, I mean, just structurally on his work.
1: Yeah. And I would say that is really an important idea in understanding that we carry multiple personas within us and I think of it Picasso not just Spanish but from southern Spain and illusion short Mm -hmm. darker in Paris in elite Paris that kind of wearing a mask to become an artist to become Mm -hmm. an elite to become an intellectual and that kind of issue of masking I think is really important Uh, and even in thinking about the Gertrude Stein painting Mm -hmm. there too we've got a series of revelations and mass and and it was you know we can go back to to carnival tropes and the the kind of liberty that happens where one is wearing a mask and there were a number of events in paris at this time where literally that was happening, the wearing of a mask and the removal of a mask.
0: Absolutely fascinating. So Picasso's engaging African traditions here, but he's also engaging traditional European traditions in the painting, isn't he? And in some sense, if the painting is as revolutionary as it obviously is, um, does he change those traditions at all? Or does he attempt to? The, The way anything revolutionary changes not only the future, but changes the past. Big question, I know, but... uh...
1: Yeah, I, I would say Absolutely. And in part, it is by positionality. One of the things that I sort of discovered in the course of this venture of discovery, I went to the Lapin Agile, which is the cafe still existing and still running that has musical events just below Picasso's studio. And I'd seen early photographs, there are a number of them published, in, in which you've got these plaster casts. It's a very cramped space at the front and around the front each from different places and periods. And I think that one of the things that he's doing is by bringing these different styles of art and dates into the same setting, he's challenging the necessary treatment of them as sort of individual cases. He's asking Uh us to examine them together Uh uh, in a way.
0: Now, that was my impression as a medievalist, honestly, that he seems to be liberating medieval art here, you know. So, yes, yeah, yeah and, yeah, yeah. and this
1: is a time for well, it, <laughs> it's liberating it, it's celebrating it, it's mm. and it's a time in France where you get Notre Dame Cathedral is completely redone mm-hmm. with the gargoyles, etc., to make it look more medieval. And so, there's a combination of celebrating French history, mm-hmm. right? Uh-huh. This was not considered, you know, the art historical taxonomy teleology rather went from ancient greece of course egypt but ancient greece to renaissance italy and then up to the renaissance era leaving out medieval france Mm -hmm. and so this is a moment when the french history is coming to the forefront in various ways in architecture and in plaster casts that were then at the trocadero and in Mm -hmm. fact Picasso went to the Trocadero Museum uh, not to see African art, per se, or oceanic, but rather to see these medieval casts, already with this idea in mind that in some way he was going to be engaging this particular Uh realm. I don't see it so much within the context of the five Demoiselles per se. I mean, Mm -hmm. to my Mm -hmm. mind, if they were going to, if it was going to be there, it would be one of the two central figures who are more Greco-Roman in style. But medieval art, you know, I think there's something about its reach and its provocative play of forms Mm -hmm. and emotionality that touched him in a way. Yeah, and I would say where I can see it the most, probably is in the facial expression of the crouching figure moving toward us. Uh Uh, That's very similar to the kind of treatment of fountains. Uh Uh, in and around this part of Paris, where you've got the mouth open and the water emerging Uh from uh, it. That kind of gorgon slash leonine portrayal.
0: Interesting. So um, not quite the last question because I want to ask you about your future work, but is there something to be learned here about the flow of culture across time and geography? I mean, what does Les Damosel tell us not only about human development and meta history, but about metaculture, if that 's a viable word and concept metaculture I mean, what does the painting mean for the wider history of art, in other words
1: yeah, I think absolutely, and one of the things i mean interestingly enough, when I moved from Columbia to Harvard, I was invited to apply for a grant because that was the moment when slides were being scanned, and they Columbia gave permission and so Harvard considered this an expensive hire and asked me to apply for a grant, which I ended up getting, but with a project called the Social Roots of Creativity. Why is it Mm -hmm. that at particular moments in time, we have even greater creativity? And I was arguing that it is in those contexts where we find multiple diverse cultures coming together in a context which is going to enable creativity to flourish as opposed to, let's say, in war where everybody's so devastated that not much can be done but i think that that element of i was using in part several examples for that one was if it was just dna greece would probably be in a different place Mm -hmm. now for artistic creativity Um, and i was using you know the west coast california cuisine at that moment Mm -hmm. when mexico and california and asian cuisines are coming together so I think that that is still in play and I think that's very much in play in Paris in 1900 in all of these different sources and contexts and kind of an openness to address this in the academy it's the first time that they're teaching evolution in thinking about Everything from spiritual values to sources to artworks. And I think it's a really important point and an especially important point now, as I think in this country, we're thinking about the impacts of mm-hmm. proto-nationalism in this country and elsewhere. Separating people and racism and a lot of these issues that are driving a core wedge between people who really powerfully come together to reinvent the world in various ways, mm-hmm. whether through medicine or the arts. And I mm-hmm. would say this also, I find it really sad the way we have segregated STEM mm-hmm. from the humanities and social uh-huh. sciences, because let's face it, Leonardo was a really great scientist. <laughs> he was not a bad artist, yeah. but yeah. when we separate the two, we lose sight of the importance of Preservation, for uh-huh. example, the, the notion of tear down everything and yeah. to build something new and bigger. And I know that you and I are are very passionate about architectural preservation. Mm-hmm. And I do think that this kind of segregation, whether it is around race or geography or even disciplines, is to our own detriment.
0: Yeah. Interesting. And that the academy functions as a kind of allegorical microcosm of the larger world, doesn't it? And that you've got all these various cultures that give us whatever we have, our creative power. But on the other hand, it's easy to get atomized and broken up, and we get so we can't talk to each other and, and we can't be creative. I mean, that's the history of Andalusia, isn't it? And um, Alexandria, Egypt, lots of places where you have had creative churn, but it was crushed in later years. In the Middle Ages, of course, in, in in that part of Spain, you know, you had the 14th century come in with the plague, but also with political repression from France and
1: right. And you yeah. know, I don't know if we can actually do an enumeration, but the burning of the libraries in granada uh-huh. in 1492 was almost as devastating if yeah. not as devastating as alexandria and that this was intentional so we think about columbus in the americas but we also have to think about the impact on relationship between well the anti-semitism which was incredibly horrendous in that period and also the attacks on islam in africa
0: yeah so f- future work, uh, are you working on anything now? And I know you do just have a book on medieval Africa coming out, 1325, I think it's called. Yes,
1: it's. I'm behind on that one. But mm-hmm. yes, I'm actually on sabbatical this year and, uh-huh. and I'm looking to finish that up. It's called 1325, How Medieval Africa Made the World Modern, Uh and it is about what I'm defining as a revolution that is happening between around 900 to 1348, to go back to the Black Death, and it's framed around this really extraordinary relationship between the richest man in the world, Mansa Musa of Mali, and a Granada-born poet, calligrapher, and attorney named Saheli. They meet in Mecca, on the Hajj, and then travel back together, and Etzaheli, Becomes Mansa Musa's court architect. And the mosque at Timbuktu, the Jingari Bear Mosque, is, is one of his works. There are others as well. Mm-hmm. And so it's a journey through the various places identified with these two at the toward the end of this revolution, in which I'm arguing that um, Africa itself is a key resource for many of the changes that are happening in Europe in this period. In the course of this, I'm arguing that there are key tenets of Islam that are specific to Africa. And also, there are actually elements of Christianity as well during this period. But I'm looking at technical and other issues. For example, the mosque at Cordoba with its rib vaulted dome, Uh, uh which is most likely coming as a source, the rib vaulting, from sub-Saharan Africa, or at least in the Sahara itself, from Amatir or Berber, who were part of the many troops who were going into Spain as Islam was moving into Europe. And so that vaulting structure is one of uh, several things. We've got to move towards a more, for lack of a better word, parliamentary Mm -hmm. system of governance with more, I wouldn't call it equitable per se, but more voices within the decision making there's real interest in transforming science and invention to pragmatics. So it's Mm -hmm. wonderful that the Greeks were passing on theories Mm -hmm. that, of course, were described, but in Morocco and elsewhere, they really wanted to see, well, what would a water clock be like? What would Mm -hmm. it work like? There's a sense of putting things on the ground. Uh-huh. So it's a once a journey of these two individuals, this moment in time, 1325 in the Arabic Peninsula, in Cairo, in
0: North Africa.
1: I also stopped in Granada and in sub-Saharan Africa, Mali, in
0: particular, during this period. Sounds wonderful. So you'll have to come back and talk to us about it once the book is out. So yeah, it would be wonderful to have you. So I'd really like to thank you, Suzanne, for visiting the program today in the Library Cafe to talk about your book, Picasso's Demoiselles, The Untold Origins of a Modern Masterpiece, published by Duke in 2019. Thanks very much.
1: My pleasure, and great to see you again.